episode 64, Adventure. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a September 24th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Martin and Nosa Johnson were addicted to adventure. The two Kansas natives couldn't get enough of it. In the 20s, this addiction brought the husband and wife team to the plains of Africa and the jungles of Asia, where they filmed their expeditions. These films revealed exotic peoples and never-seen-before location, inspiring future naturalists. Join Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a knife that was acquired by Osa Johnson. How did this knife, a ceremonial blade used by natives in Borneo, end up in the hands of a dainty girl from Chanute, Kansas? Well, it's a bit of an adventure. Later, join us as we connect William Allen White to the lithium-ion battery. Developed by Exxon in the 1970s, this battery promised to be the most efficient energy storage device yet, as long as it doesn't blow up. Find out who's more shocking when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, adventure. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today we are going to talk about a barong, uh, which is also known as a knife. Um, this barong was originally from Borneo, which is also known as Sabah. <laughs> the knife once belonged to Martin and Osa Johnson. Um, they are two Kansas natives that eventually became internationally known for their adventure filmmaking. Uh, in the 1930s, the Johnsons traveled to a little place called Borneo. Uh, where is Borneo and what were the Johnsons doing there? Well, Borneo is one of the islands that is north of Australia. Um, and the Johnsons were there because they made their lives as, as you said, as adventure filmmakers. Um, they, you would think that they would be independently wealthy by today's standards, you know, but um, in those days you didn't need much money to travel. Um, and so they just kind of struck out. They were a very adventuresome couple and they made their living out of filming in these exotic places that included places in the South Seas like Borneo. Um, Let's see, I think Survivor was filmed in Van, Vanuatu, I can't pronounce the island name, Vanuatu, uh-huh. and, and that was one of the islands that the Johnsons filmed at, and uh, the, probably their best loved continent to be on was Africa. They filmed a lot in Africa in the later 20s and 30s. They actually lived in Africa for a little while, didn't they? They did. They lived on a lake that they called Lake Paradise. It was in Kenya. What, so they were actually shooting like wildlife, um, shooting scenes of the jungle. Um, I've seen I've seen a couple of them. It looks like they were also really into shoot, to shooting, yeah, <laughs> to filming, big, <laughs> to fil- to fil- filming people, filming people <laughs> yeah. and big games. Yeah, but. It was kind of a, I don't know, it has a very National Geographic feel to it. Yeah, it does. Kind of a, yeah, kind of, it is a very adventurous way of presenting peoples and animals from um, places that were not very familiar then and frankly still aren't that familiar because, you know, I had to look up Borneo on a map to see exactly where that was. That's because it changed names. (laughs) Yeah. 
the couple became famous not just for going on safaris in places like Africa and living with natives in Malaysia. They became famous for doing it on film. Um, why do you think their wildlife films were so well received? Uh, it's pretty easy when you put it into the context of that time period. Their first film came out in the late 1917s, right, or like late teens, right after World War One ended, and their last film came out in the 1930s. When you think about it, travel was really expensive in those days. I mean, I, I expensive in the sense it was time consuming. You had to have a lot of time away from your job or your livelihood, unless you were like Martin and Osa, who that was their job. They just traveled and filmed and they didn't need much money to do it. But it took a lot of time to get in anywhere because this was before airplanes were around. So you had to get on a steamer and a steamship and go across the Pacific Ocean to get there. Um, another reason is that um, today we have these wonderful mega zoos where you can see animals from all over the world in their natural in a natural setting but that wasn't true back in the teens 20s and 30s so this was a way for people in tiny little places rural areas around our country to experience some of the adventure that the Johnsons did uh, when they were in uh, Borneo or Africa. And um, they did focus a lot on the animals, which animals are always really popular. Zoos are popular, you know, people love to see animals. And the Johnsons pitched it in these films in such a way that it was suspenseful and they would catch the animals being playful. And you know, it, it was just a really nice emotional package the way they, they set it up and edited the films. And then once uh, sound movies came out, the way they narrated them. How would most people have viewed these films? Were they shown in like a local theater or were they like the short before the feature film? Well, there were a couple of different ways. Some of them were feature films, feature length films. Um, but the Johnsons also made money off of doing lecture tours. And a lot of their films were before talkies. The first talkie was in the late 1920s. Martin was from Lincoln, Kansas, and Osa from Chanute. Uh, how did these two crazy small-town kids, uh, how did they meet and begin a career in filmmaking? It's a little odd. Yeah. Uh, Chanute, not, not filmmaking capital <laughs> No, world. no, not at all. Well, if any of you are interested in a really fun read, Osa wrote a book after Martin died called I Married Adventure. And she gets into great detail in how they met. And apparently from childhood on, Martin was ready to blast out of independence. He was not going to stay in independence very long. Martin was from Kansas, but he <clears throat> later he, he later moved to independence. Yeah, he, 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 was, he grew up in Lincoln and um, moved to independence, which is not that far away from Chanute, actually. So, yeah, they weren't living that far from each other, but they were about nine or ten years apart in age. And, you know, when you're young, that is an eternity. It's really kind of a miracle that they ever did get together. But um, Martin had... He had some training as a photographer. His father had an Eastman Kodak franchise, so he got into photography at a young age. Um, he was always running away from home to try his hand at doing different things. I mean, not running away from home in the sense that he had a bad upbringing. He just wanted adventure. He lived for it. At, at a very young age, he 
learned that Jack London, the famous adventure novelist, was having this competition, in essence, to uh, fill the last position on his expedition to the South Seas. And out of thousands of letters that were written, Martin's was so passionate that Jack London selected him. And he lived on this boat with Jack London um, and the, the rest of the crew for two years. They went to the South Seas, and Martin was doing all this photography there. And So let me get this straight. Martin Johnson from Independence, Independence Kansas. Kansas traveled on a steamship with Jack yeah, London, he was the really, famous writer. Uh-huh. That's amazing. He was in disbelief that it, his letter got selected, um, but he never did find out from Jack London exactly why he got selected, except London asked him, can you cook? And uh, he telegrammed back, yeah, sure, and then he immediately found a local cook at the little hash slinger, you know, hash slinging cafe, and learned how to kick a cook, really bad food apparently, but that was good enough for, you know, a steamship in the South Seas sure. for two years. So um, anyway, he he really had this passion for travel, but he also had connection to home. So he'd come back, he would um, come back, um, he came back after his expedition with London to Independence and he starts uh, selling, working as a photographer because his dad wanted him to stay at home for a while. And he traveled to Chanute and he, uh, he photographs different people there, and he eventually meets Osa Johnson. They get hooked up. Um, she's still fairly young at that point. They get together again later, uh, and she's 16 years old, and in a matter of weeks, they get married. They um, are adventurous. They're they? very adventurous, yeah. He just on the spur of the moment says, let's get married, and she, being 16 years old at the time, says, sure, and they ran away and eloped. Um, and it's it's just a fascinating life, very much of a whirlwind romance. But the marriage lasted 27 years until his death um, in a plane crash. So um, it was a very strong marriage. And their their start in the filmmaking career that that there's a little bit of a connection to George Eastman, right? Uh -huh. The Eastman camera or Eastman, Eastman film Kodak, company. Yeah. yeah. Well. Um, it yeah. wasn't Eastman Kodak, Eastman Kodak yeah. as in Kodak, Kodak now. Camera. Yeah. yeah. Um, originally, they were go they were going on these expeditions on shoestring budgets, but you know it it was expensive for them to haul this equipment around. I mean, just two people traveling on a steamship wasn't that expensive in those days. But you had all of this movie equipment, and of course, they had to have people or some way to carry it into the wilds. I mean, they were going to places that some sometimes were extremely difficult to get to, just walking, let alone hauling all this equipment. And all the other thing was Martin actually developed his film in the field, so he would be in a hut on a beach sometimes developing these this film. So um, they really needed money to help them with that, and they did it through these lecture tours, but later on in life in the 20s, they realized, you know, maybe we should approach somebody with some money. And so they wrote George Eastman, and he saw them. That would never happen today. He's like, sure, come on in. Mm -hmm. Gives them $10,000 to finance their African expeditions, and later joins them on an expedition himself, and by all accounts had a blast. He said it was one of the best times he'd ever had in his life. When watching their films, you quickly realize that the Johnsons were living in an age of imperialism, and a lot of that is due to the way that they portray natives uh -huh. and and sort of depict even the wildlife. Um, it's very imperialistic. Uh, what do you think, Rebecca? Were the Johnsons educational or were they exploitive? I think they were both. They clearly they knew how to please an audience. So 
although they didn't often set things up, it did occasionally happen. Um, and they knew what they needed and they wanted those films to be a big success. On the other hand, um, a lot of people today say that they were inspired by them, especially um, biologists and preservationists, um, inspired by those movies of wildlife that just doesn't exist in those numbers anymore. I mean, you see some of their African films and it's just amazing the amount of wildlife that existed as short a time ago as in the 1920s. Um, so conservationists um, often refer to their films as well as anthropologists um, because they captured some native peoples on film in very early, almost pre-contact stages. Um, although by today's standards, the way they refer to those peoples is cringeworthy. I mean, they, they, you know, they, it was really that imperialistic tone that we are so much more civilized than them. We take baths. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We can speak English. And they're very exotic, you know, and simple and sometimes, simple, yes. you know, poor and poor and in intelligence. You know, that's oh, the way definitely. it's portrayed in the film. Yeah. Um, but I do have to say the films, like they technically kind of amaze me, like some of them from the 1920s. This is early on and, you know, fairly early on in filmmaking. And they're lugging these big cameras oh, around. Huge, yeah. And the film, the production value is pretty high. I mean, it's beautiful scenery, beautiful lighting. Mm -hmm. The filming is very smooth. Yeah. It's just pretty amazing for that time period. And they both got behind the camera. It wasn't just Martin. He, he did the lion's share of the cinematography, but Osa also filmed. And another interesting thing about their lives is that um, once they had some real money, they got some of these big back, this big backing from people like Eastman. They bought two airplanes and they used them to film in Africa some of the first footage overhead from a plane it's oh, just wow. stunning some of it's stunning and they also um, were the first to fly over mounts Kilimanjaro and Kenya and film those from the air in some ways Osa herself um, exhibited characteristics similar to another rather famous Kansas woman Amelia Earhart they both kind of found a way to combine fashion and adventure and sort of turn it into a livelihood um, what do you think Osa would have been like on a long hike through the jungle? I think she would have been a lot of fun. And clearly Martin thought she was because the, he wouldn't go anywhere without her. I mean, they were such a true partnership. Uh, he was always very careful about her and very worried about her. But when you read um, her books, they're filled with these exchanges between the two of them that are, I think, just hilarious, like them bickering over whether or not this animal is going to charge them while they're filming. And, you know, of course the animal charges and Osa shoots them. I mean, she was shoots the animal. I mean, she was a game for anything. And that woman could um, shoot a gun uh, and did on more than one occasion save either herself or Martin from um, death uh, because of an animal charging at them. Um, she she went into you know she um, encountered tribes in the South Seas Islands that were practicing cannibalism. Um, she always says in her book that the thing that drove her the craziest was when people would warn Martin, don't take your wife along on this expedition. You'll be putting her in great peril. And she's thinking, what? I just met some cannibals last year and you're telling me I can't now go into Africa? Um, she was very much a feminist in that way. But she was also one of these people who loved to make a home. I mean, she never had actually, they never owned a home per se. 
um, because they were all they were often living in you know a, a very um, well a situation like on the African veldt or somewhere in a, a hut or in a tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you also read about her trying to make things homey and domestic and also she wears some of some of the pictures you see of her she's wearing typical safari garb. I mean she was wearing pants because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't hike the jungles of Borneo wearing a skirt. Uh, but then you also see her wearing some very frilly Edwardian clothes too in the uh-huh. wild. So she was she was her own woman in a lot of ways. I think that's a fascinating side of her. And you were telling me that she was very um, that she was very flapper looking in her appearance. Mm-hmm. She was gorgeous, and, uh, she, and she was often the subject or the star mm-hmm. of many of the movies in a way. Yeah, she had this kind of perfect kind of baby doll or cupid doll looks that were very popular in in film stars in the nineteen twenties. She was very petite. I think she was five feet two inches. Beautiful face, curly hair, framing it, big blue eyes. Um, and you know, uh, she was very had a very bubbly personality. So men were often just you know they wanted to protect her. All of these men and Martin wanted to go with them, uh, which I think was a, a great um, great partnership. I have this really short excerpt to read from her book, Osa's book, I Married Adventure, um, and this is this takes place just before their first trip to Borneo, and which led to this barong that we have. Um, it's written from. Uh, Osa's perspective. So when you hear the the word I, that's Osa talking. Martin said, want to buy a house? Settle down in Chanute or in Independence. With what we'll be getting out of the pictures, we could settle down and have a little home if you want to. I didn't answer right away. I just looked straight back at him. If you want to, he repeated. I saw an anxious line appear between his eyes. Why, my goodness, I said, finally, where'd you get such a crazy idea? Good, he shouted, then we're going to Borneo. <laughs> so, yeah. That's pretty, I know. Those, that sounds like people that are addicted to an adventure lifestyle. Adventure, yeah. I mean, I think they, they had to be. They, you know, they both just, they love the adrenaline of being in uh, these really kind of scary situations and places where people like them had never been before. They, and they loved each other a lot, and that comes through. This knife is called a barong, and it belonged to the Moro people of Borneo. What is a barong, and how did the Johnsons get it? Well, a, a barong is a big, long knife. Like you said, it's it's about 16 inches long, about 3 inches wide, and it's curved. Um, and it's a weapon. Um, it was intended to be used as a weapon by these native peoples, the um, Moro. Um, but the one we have is actually more ceremonial. It's got a beautifully carved um, ivory pommel, and it's got some sterling silver bands on the hilt. Um, so it was really more, I guess you could say, ceremonial or for show. It probably was never used as a weapon. But the intention was that you, you would use this to defend yourself. And in fact, I've read accounts that you could easily cut someone's limb off with this knife. Um, nice. So yeah, it was a very effective weapon. Uh, it's meant to slice, not stab. Um, and they got it on their first trip to Borneo. We don't know much more details than that, but it was given to us by Osa's mother, um, Belle Lady, who um, lived in and uh, died in Chanute, Kansas, um, never never went to Africa to visit her daughter. Um, and she gave it to us after Osa passed away. Her, her mother outlived her. Mm-hmm. So we don't know any more about it than that. And while we're talking about Chanute, 
um, the Johnsons left a bit of a legacy behind, didn't they? They did, and you can see that in a museum that's in Chinook, Kansas, the Martin and Osa Johnson Safari Museum. Uh, you can see, uh, you can read a lot more about, or learn a lot more about their lives um, there, and also see some of the items that they collected on their travels and used in their cinematography. You've seen the Johnson's 1921 film, Wild Men and Beasts of Borneo, right, Rebecca? Uh-huh. Okay, after having seen that, and, and there's a couple scenes in there. Um, well, there's some scenes where they film some natives that's a little disturbing. Yes. But um, uh, one particular series I found a little disturbing was the um, Up Close and Personal with the Elephant. Um, uh, Rebecca, what do you think... Well, okay, I'll say what happens. Um, they basically, there's a sequence where they want to take a closer look at an elephant. So they dig an elephant pit, and they have some, some natives um, go out and chase down elephants and run them into this pit. Elephant falls in the pit, and they're filming it. And at some point, they just, like, uh, cut away. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what happened to the elephant. I don't think the elephant was going to be coming out of that no, pit. No, probably not. Rebecca, what do you think PETA's reaction to this production? Uh, what do you think that would have been? Uh, I think it was probably a good thing for the Johnsons that organizations like PETA did not exist in the 30s. I'm not saying that they shouldn't exist now. I'm just saying that, you know, they would have been, this would have been a terrible source of controversy today. Um, But you have to place the Johnsons in that time frame, like we were talking uh, before, uh, you and I were talking about Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, they're kind of in that Teddy Roosevelt, you know, bully, bully, shoot it, but also right. fight to conserve, you know, animal. They're in that right. same vein. I mean, they, they used guns. They were not they were not afraid of shooting, but they always made the claim that they, they shot animals or they killed animals because they needed to for their work, not wanton killing. Um, although the elephant in the Pit maybe another case <laughs> entirely. Guy. By the time they got to Africa, though, because um, the, the, what you're talking about is in Borneo. By the time they got to Africa, they really were more conservationists uh, oriented uh, in today's light. Um, although they were not vegetarian. <laughs> no, no, probably enjoyed a little elephant from time I, I to time. I bet they did. All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the Johnsons and their barong. You're welcome. They say when you're and now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Today we are connecting the ever-exciting lithium-ion battery to William Allen White, a Kansas native, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, and buddy of presidents. Plural, not singular. Presidents. Yes, yes. That's impressive. So first, we'll just do a little general background on the lithium-ion battery, which was kind of interesting. The battery is one of several of a varieties of rechargeable batteries, others being rechargeable alkaline or nickel-cadmium. Batteries, uh, in case you didn't know, um, they're devices to store energy, and they've been around since antiquity. Um, they were actually storing electricity in, in ancient Baghdad. This is fascinating, huh? <laughs> Batteries, as we, as we know them today, first appeared in the 1800s. Um, and the lithium-ion battery was first developed by chemists at Exxon. That's right, Exxon. In 1971, <laughs> the major advantages of the lithium-ion battery are that they're lightweight, 
They have no memory effect, as in, uh, you know, most batteries will start to lose their capacity after you charge them, recharge them multiple times. Mm -hmm. The lithium battery isn't supposed to. Um, and they don't lose power when not in use. The only downside to the lithium battery is that it apparently has a propensity to explode. Wow. <laughs> These batteries are usually used in electronic devices, and in 2004, 2006, and 2007, there was massive recalls of all these um, batteries, particularly ones that were used in laptops because they would set the laptop on fire. <laughs> so that's the lithium-ion lithium battery background. Uh, Nikayla, can you connect this innovative piece of technology to a um, writer from Emporia, Kansas? I sure can, and in not very many degrees either. Um, as you mentioned, the idea for the lithium-ion battery was proposed to Exxon by M.S. Whittingham in the 1970s. And, of course, Exxon was part of the Standard Oil Company. In the early 1900s, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. became the director of Standard Oil, which, of course, was founded by his father and uncle and um, three other men. In uh, 1919, um, John D. Rockefeller Jr. met William Allen White at a conference regarding the steel industry. The conference was called by Woodrow Wilson, and White was covering it for a newspaper syndicate. And also at the conference was another writer, Ida Tarbell, who um, William Allen White was friends with. And apparently she had written a book against Standard Oil and their practices. Oh. And so... Um, was she like a muckraker type? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And John D. Rockefeller Jr. asked William Allen White for advice on how to handle her, because he oh. didn't know how to approach her. So. Wow. So there you what go. White said? Um, I, he didn't say in the autobiography exactly what he said, but he felt that um, both of them had the same interests at heart, like they both wanted the same outcome, and he felt that if the two of them could get their minds together, they could solve all the problems of the steel industry. Goodness. Yeah, pretty cool. So, that, not too not too hard. Once you get a Rockefeller in there. Yeah. You <laughs> and get a the white autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty easy. All right, well, uh, I have a solution as well. Um, though the lithium-ion battery uh, was first theorized at Exxon, the technology was refined and greatly um, developed at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey. Um, Bell Laboratories is a cutting-edge research institution that was originally created to be the research and development branch of Bell Telephone Companies. These guys have been around since the late 19th century. Impressive. Um, it's named, obviously, after Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. Um, well, Bell Telephone, um, as most of you probably know, it was bought by American Telephone and Telegraph Company, or AT&T. And there's a long, drawn-out story about AT&T getting busted up into multiple parts. Well, one of the breakaways was Bell Laboratories, so it's not really connected to AT&T anymore. It kind of became independent and really began to do a lot of its own work to include huge defense projects for the federal government. Also, in 1927, they began working on refining the experimental television. Um, and Bell Labs transmitted the first moving images along a cable from Washington, D.C. to New York City. The, images, the image depicted the then Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover. Oh, wow. And as we know, <laughs> Herbert Hoover, our Republican, was good buddies with our friend William Allen White. In fact, Hoover, uh, Hoover actually visited, and where did he sleep? In, In that magical bed. bed at the William Allen White <laughs> House. The bed of presidents. <laughs> cool. So there you go. That's lithium-ion to William Allen White. 
cool. Something our listeners probably don't know is that the last time when Merle said he just kind of pulled this lithium ion battery out of the blue, we were groaning, oh my gosh, <laughs> we have to connect William Allen White to a battery? And in a matter of, gosh, less than five minutes, we had it, right, guys? Or at least one connection. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What, I think what you guy. said standard oil, and we were like, oh, well, no I problem. <laughs> Well, Rebecca, would you like to share the um, the challenge for the next episode? Sure. We want you to connect William Allen White to the honeymoon capital of the world, Niagara Falls. Straddled on the border between the U.S. and Canada, this breathtaking series of waterfalls has fascinated visitors since the 1800s. Well, if William Allen White himself didn't visit Niagara Falls. Oh, I know. I was yeah. going to say, did he and Sally White honeymoon on, on the falls? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it says in the autobiography. Uh, so, the autobiography. You Buy your coffee today. <laughs> All right, so if you think you can connect William Allen White to a giant Canadian spill or water spill, <laughs> just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. So late. That concludes episode 54, Adventure. If you would like to see images of this massive knife from Borneo, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Barbed wire. This cheap and simple invention forever altered the landscape and culture of the Great Plains. For decades, it sustained a massive cattle industry and bankrolled steel magnates back east. Today, barbed wire technology is used to incarcerate convicts and establish borders between countries. Join museum director Bob Kekeisen and me as we examine the Devil's Rope and its tangled legacy. Finally, if you would like to provide some feedback on our podcast, you can by accessing a survey on our website, kshs.org, from either the Cool Things page or the podcast page. Let us know what you think or what you would like to hear about. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. So lay down!